Good morning. Peace be with you. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Grace and peace to you. Uh, my name is Garrison. If, if this is your first time here, I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. We're very glad that you're here this morning. Um, if you take a moment just to fill out uh, the Connect card that is inside of the bulletin that you received when you walked in this morning, um, that's just a good way for us to get to know you and, and hopefully get connected with you and um, learn how we might be praying for you. There's a little space for prayer requests in there. If you could just jot down a few things in there, that would be excellent. Um, If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah 2. After three weeks in Nehemiah 1, we're jumping into Nehemiah 2, looking at verses 1 through 8. Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be white or blue paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those. Turn to page 226. 226. That'll get you to Nehemiah 2. Uh, 2 is the chapter number. That's the big number. Verses 1 through 8. Those are the verses, the little numbers. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home and make it your own. All right, let's dig into Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. You can stand when you're ready. I just told you to sit down, I know. You want to stand for the reading of God's holy and precious word out of respect for God's word, where our attention is set. Listen with reverence and with joy the words of our King. Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Pray that the seed of this word would be planted in our hearts. I pray that our hearts would not be like that thorny soil or the beaten down path or the rocky soil. 
that our hearts would be like that fresh, fertile soil prepared by your spirit to receive the seed of the word and to produce 30, 60, even 100 fold. The words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, we're moving right along in our sermon series on Nehemiah, and we've been introduced to Nehemiah and and to the circumstances surrounding the drama of this book. And one of the things that we learned about Nehemiah is that he was the cupbearer to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, while the people of Israel were in exile. This means that Nehemiah is the king's servant. He's the king's servant. He's this, this sort of butler. He serves the king his wine uh, and, and tastes the king's wine before it's served in order to make sure it's not poisoned, amongst other things. Uh, and this was a very important role uh, because in those days, if you ever wanted to overthrow a king and take the throne, the best way to do that would be to poison him, to, to kill him by poisoning his wine or his food. Someone actually attempted to do just that later uh, to a later king of the Persian Empire. But when his plan was found out, the king actually forced the conspirator to to drink the cup himself and and thus die. So needless to say, Nehemiah's role is is, uh, very important. Nehemiah is a very well-trusted servant of the king. And and this says a lot about uh, how God's people took to being in exile. It says a lot about Nehemiah's personal character and conduct. He's one of the king's most trusted servants. But more importantly, as we've seen, as we've walked through Nehemiah's prayer the last several weeks, more importantly, as we've seen, Nehemiah is a servant of the God of heaven, as he continually refers to him. Nehemiah is a servant of the God of heaven. His ultimate loyalty, his ultimate allegiance, his ultimate hope is not set on the kingdom of Artaxerxes, but on the kingdom of God. He is burdened and broken about the state of the city and people of God. He's burdened and broken about the cause of the kingdom of God. He has sacrificially prayed and fasted for the city of God and the people of God. He has sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, as Jesus told us to do in Matthew 6. He has placed his citizenship in the kingdom of God over his citizenship in the Persian Empire. And our text this morning is a, is a conversation between Nehemiah and the king in light of this reality. So let's dig in. Now chapter 2 picks up uh, four or so months after Nehemiah initially hears about Jerusalem's troubles. In the month of Kislev, in Nehemiah 1.1, Nehemiah hears about the city walls and, and begins praying. And now in the month of Nisan, he begins seeing what he prayed for come to a reality. He says in verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So this is about the time uh, of December to about the time of April. Uh, Kislev is about December. Uh, Nisan is about April. It's around four months. Uh, And in their calendar, this was also around the new year. And so there are probably celebrations going on. Uh, That's why the queen is there, as Nehemiah mentions. She's not normally there. This is out of the ordinary. Uh, So she's there. Probably a party is being thrown. Now, they used to throw wild parties in the Persian Empire. Uh, And New Year, of course, as we know, is a good time for partying. Uh, and, And so there's the party going on. The queen is there. The king is also getting his drink on. So Nehemiah says he took up the wine and gave it to the king. But when Nehemiah brings the king his wine, the king can see that something is wrong. Uh, Evidently, Nehemiah was not a very melancholy person generally. He says that he had never been sad in the presence of the king up to this point. 
But just the knowledge of the city of God being in such a decrepit state, the temple of God being in such a vulnerable position, the people of God being ashamed, it's all just too much for Nehemiah. He's absolutely burdened and broken about the state of the people of God. And, and if you've ever received a call on your life like Nehemiah's here, you probably know what he's going through. Even, even, though, even if you're not a person who's kind of prone to being melancholy, prone to being depressed, you, you probably know what he's talking about. Sometimes when people receive a call on their life to love and serve and, and care for particular people, when there's a calling like this place on your life, you begin to be depressed about the state of the people you've been called to. I know a number of pastors have experienced this. I've experienced this, and I'm sure that some of you have experienced this. You know, I've never been prone to depression or anything like that, but about a year into the church plant, it just started going in, in like week-long spurts here or there every once in a while. I've talked to many other pastors who have experienced the same kind of thing, and this is what Nehemiah is going through. He's, he's, he's going through this sort of uh, state of just being so burdened and broken about the people he's been called to, and the king notices this. And so he says, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Now, Nehemiah, he's in danger here. Uh, culturally, in this time and place, you can't be sad in the presence of a king. Okay, like the king's presence is supposed to bring you joy. To be sad in the presence of the king is to say that there's something deficient about the king. And so being sad in the presence of the king means you're liable to get your head chopped off. And Nehemiah knows this. So he says, then I was very much afraid. You know, his palms are probably sweating. He's breathing heavy. You know, kind of, kind of feels like there are butterflies in his stomach. You know the feeling. But he speaks up and he says, but the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, These are bold words to say in such a perilous situation, such a potentially treacherous situation. Because you've got to understand, Jerusalem is in this state, not in spite of Artaxerxes, but precisely because of King Artaxerxes. Like if you, if you went back and read Ezra, like we talked about a few weeks ago before getting into Nehemiah, you read Ezra 4. And in Ezra 4, we see that while the Jews were attempting to rebuild uh, the, the, the city of Jerusalem, some opposition arose from the governors and judges and officials in the province beyond the river, the province that Jerusalem was in. And they very, in a very sly and clever way, they, they wrote a, king to king, a letter to King Artaxerxes saying that if Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, if they're allowed to be rebuilt, the people of the city will become rebellious and they will no longer pay tribute to Persia. Obviously, the king can't have that. He doesn't want a war on his hands. So in response, Artaxerxes made a decree that the city should not be rebuilt. So you can imagine, this is a potentially dangerous situation. Nehemiah is saying to the king, in essence, God's city is in shambles, and it's your fault. Nehemiah's words are bold. But still, instead of hearing off with his head, Nehemiah hears the king utter these words of inquiry. He says, what are you requesting? So apparently, Nehemiah's words communicated that he wanted something to be done about this. The king picks up on this, and the conversation continues on. But in the midst of this conversation, Nehemiah does something of interest to us. The very next thing, after the king asks him, what are you requesting? Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, of course, he didn't say, Hold on, let me pray. 
Hold on, let me pray about it. Give me a minute, Artaxerxes. This is a quick, quiet, silent prayer. Some have called this an arrow prayer, sort of, boo, just shoot one off to heaven sort of thing. Just a quick prayer in the midst of a, a, a situation such as this. Those of you who are mothers of young children, you probably know all about these kinds of prayers. God, help me to not kill this child. Or, Lord, give me patience today. Help me to make it through the day. Something along those lines. You know, moms know about these kinds of prayers. And honestly, truly, this is a wonderful practice. This is a wonderful practice. I've availed myself to this practice. I have kind of several go-to prayers, arrow prayers that I utter throughout the day. When I get a moment to breathe, I'll just... God, I am in your presence. Or uh, sometimes people throughout history, church history, have prayed what's called the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy upon me. Just a quick prayer, an arrow prayer. This is a a good practice. You you would do well to have a couple of arrow prayers in your quiver, if you will. It's an archery joke. Um, I'm sure Nehemiah uttered a prayer like this. Lord, Help me when I, I, I need you. Lord, help me. Give, give me grace to speak the right words. Quick prayer, an arrow prayer. And after addressing the one true king in prayer, Nehemiah turns and addresses Artaxerxes, and he says, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Now, I want you to understand how unlikely this is to actually be granted. Like, For one, Nehemiah is asking to rebuild the city of Jerusalem that Artaxerxes explicitly decreed should not be rebuilt. Second, Nehemiah is asking King Artaxerxes to send Nehemiah, his cupbearer, to do it. One of the king's most trusted and relied upon servants to do it. He can't leave the king. Who who would fill his position? Who could be trusted in such a way? Yet, as verse 6 says, And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So, Nehemiah says, It pleased the king to send me when when I had given him a time. But still, Nehemiah is not done with his requests yet. He, He not only wants permission for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, he not only wants permission to take a vacation, to go lead in rebuilding it, He also says that he wants the the city to be rebuilt in the king's name with the king's supplies. Nehemiah says, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river. So those are the same people who wrote the letter uh, to uh, oppose the rebuilding of the city just a few years earlier. He says, "If, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the province of the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. In other words, I want to rebuild the city and I want you to formally put your name on it and I want you to pay for it. And also to build me a new house to live in while I lead in rebuilding it. Yet, while this is also unlikely to turn out in Nehemiah's favor and in the favor of the people and city of God, it does. The king grants Nehemiah's request. The king permits Jerusalem to be rebuilt. He permits Nehemiah to take a a sabbatical to go rebuild it. He permits Nehemiah to rebuild it officially, formally in the king's name. He permits Nehemiah to use his supplies to rebuild it in his own private forest. 
and to, and to build Nehemiah's house that he's going to live in while he's gone. He agrees and permits all of it. The king grants Nehemiah all that he asked for, all because, as Nehemiah says in verse 8 to conclude, he says, the king granted me what I asked for, for because the good hand of my God was upon me. Now that statement is pregnant with me. It's loaded with meaning. Like at its core, it means that God's benevolent sovereignty was on Nehemiah for his good. And the theological principles that spring forth from that are myriad. And and we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at a few of those. First, it means that God hears and answers prayer. So don't forget what we've been learning the last several Sundays. Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. He prayed patiently for four months. He prayed persistently for four months. He prayed day and night. Nehemiah adored God and confessed his and Israel's sins. He thanked God. He requested precisely what we see take place here in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. Nehemiah prayed, Lord, grant me success and grant me mercy in the sight of this man, this man being none other than King Artaxerxes. And in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8, God grants him mercy in the sight of this man. He grants him success. God grants Nehemiah his extremely unlikely answer to prayer. What we see here in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8 is an answer to prayer. God hears and answers prayer. And now you might be thinking, hold on there, pastor. I'm not so sure about that. I've prayed for things before and they've never been answered. I pray, I've prayed for things before and I've not seen what I prayed for come to pass. Well, first, I, I have some questions about that. First, I, I would ask you, did you pray in light of the promises of God? Do you pray in light of the promises of God? One of the things we see Nehemiah do, as we looked at the last couple of Sundays, is Nehemiah prayed in light of the promises of God. He prays and pleads the promises of God for the people of Israel. He, as as it were, reminds God of his promises that he laid out in Deuteronomy 27 through 29 to bring the people of Israel back to the promised land if they would only repent and return to him in their hearts. Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1 is a prayer informed by the promises of God then. Nehemiah's prayer in in, in chapter 1 is pleading, is praying the promises of God. So have you prayed in light of the promises of God? Like God never promised you a new beamer. God never promised you six-pack abs. God never promised you an A in that class. God never promised you a spouse. So you can't hold him to those requests, because he never promised them to you. Have you prayed in light of the promises of God? Second, I would ask you, if you're struggling to believe that God truly answers prayer, you've had experiences that testify to this, I would ask you, have you prayed in faith? Have you prayed in faith in the promises of God? As James says, beginning in in, uh, James 1.5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Have you prayed in faith? Have you prayed in trust? If you don't trust in God and his promises, then you don't know him. I'm not talking about struggling with doubts. I'm talking about praying without faith entirely. Have you prayed in faith? doesn't have to be a great measure of faith. As Jesus said in, in, in Luke 17, 6, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, 
Go up and go plant, be planted in the sea, and it will happen. Faith is the instrument through which we are reconciled to God and the instrument through which our prayers are answered. And church, you see, we can pray in faith. We can pray trusting God. We must pray trusting God because as Martin Luther once said, prayer is laying hold of God's willingness. It's not overcoming his reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. He wants to answer your prayer. So you can pray in faith, pray and trust, and you must Next, I would simply ask you if maybe, actually, you have seen answers to your prayer. You have seen answers to your prayers. This has been something that we've been growing in the Green household for the last year or so, um, is recognizing when we've had an answer to prayer. Okay, and it happens more often than you think, but we're often too spiritually dull to notice. We think, oh, well, it probably would have happened like that anyways, I think we probably all thought that before. Probably would have happened like that anyways. We just don't even notice at all. Which is really a shame because when that happens, we're failing to properly give thanks to God for answered prayer. We're robbing God of the glory due his name because he is a God who answers prayer. And he deserves our adoration and thanksgiving for being such a God, being a God of such grace and kindness. He truly does hear us. He truly does answer prayer. And next, we see that God not only hears and answers prayer, we see that God is absolutely sovereign. Nehemiah's conversation here is obviously with the king, a very powerful man. He uses the word, he refers to King Artaxerxes as the king 13 times. But in his reference to God as the God of heaven, He's saying God is above, God is bigger than Artaxerxes. And he's, he's saying, uh, uh, when, uh, when he says that the king granted him his, his request because the good hand of my God was upon me, he's saying that however much earthly power and authority Artaxerxes may have, he's still a man. He's still limited. Only the God of heaven has absolute sovereignty. The God of heaven is absolutely sovereign. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Second Chronicles 20 verse 6 says that he rules over all kingdoms of the nations, that in his hand are power and might, and that no one can withstand his hand. No one can thwart his plans, his sovereign plans. He has authority over every inch of this universe. He has control over every speck of dust that floats through the air. None of it happens without his say-so. The earth rotates and the sun shines in its place because of the word of his power. He controls the destinies of nations and peoples and he is sovereign over every king and politician that has ever ruled, including that of Artaxerxes, the pagan king Artaxerxes here. As Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Wherever he wants it to go, whatever he wants it to do, it, it, he does it. And now some might be tempted to ask whether the first point here, God hears and answers prayer, contradicts the second point that God is absolutely sovereign. Once I had, I had a friend who asked me, who knew that I believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, he asked me, why pray? Why pray if God is absolutely sovereign? What's the point in praying then? To which I replied, why on earth would we pray if he wasn't? 
As Jerry Bridges once said, as you'll see in your bulletin, prayer assumes the sovereignty of God. If God is not sovereign, we have no assurance that he is able to answer our prayers. Our prayers would be nothing more than wishes. You see, we pray precisely because God is sovereign. We expect him to answer precisely because he is sovereign. The only reason we can believe and trust that he is able to answer prayers is precisely because he is absolutely sovereign over absolutely everything. Nehemiah believed and was assured of this. That's why he prayed in the way that he did, with boldness and with trust. That's why he stepped out in faith and made this request to the king when the opportunity arose. That's why his prayer was answered. Because God is absolutely sovereign. And his hand was sovereignly guiding the situation and the decisions of King Artaxerxes. And lastly, we see that not only does God hear and answer the prayers of his people, not only is God absolutely sovereign, but God works all things for the good of his people. Which is, of course, a reference to Romans eight twenty eight, where we see the Apostle Paul say, we know, we know that all things... Work for the good of those who love God. All things work together for good for those who love God. All things work together for good for God's people. That Listen, God's sovereignty is not some sort of abstract theory that has no relevance to our lives as Christians. Because listen, God, God is all that he is for his people. And that means that God's sovereignty is for his people. God's sovereignty is good news for his people, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, God's sovereignty is a soft pillow on which you can rest your head at night. Because that means that that the hand that sovereignly guides the goings-on of the entire universe is the same hand that is on you for your good. Even in situations as treacherous and perilous as potentially getting your head chopped off by the king. God's hand is on you for your good, for the good of his people. That song we often sing here, When the earth beneath me crumbles and quakes, not a sparrow falls nor a hair from my head without his hand to guide me, my shield and my strength. It means that no matter where we find ourselves in the presence of the king, in an alley, in a pit, no matter where we find ourselves or what we're doing, his hand is on us for our good. He's controlling the planets and the specks of dust floating through the air for the good of his people. He's controlling the destinies of nations and the decisions of kings for the good of his people. And we can be assured that this is true because the very hand that he's talking about as the church prays in Acts 4, 27 to 28, is the hand that appointed Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do, they say, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And that hand, that plan that they're referring to, is guiding those leaders and authorities to crucify the Lord Jesus. He was crucified and killed in order to purchase our forgiveness, in order to purchase our salvation from sin, in order to purchase our reconciliation to God and to one another forever. That's what the sovereign God, with his sovereign hand, guided and predestined to take place. And so now that hand that sovereignly guides the universe is a nail-scarred hand, the very hand that testifies to the reality that we are so dearly loved by the sovereign God 
that he would come down, take on flesh, be crucified and killed, and become powerless. All so that we would be treasured and loved and well cared for by the powerful God, the sovereign God, forever. So that we can say, like Nehemiah says, that the good and gracious hand of our God is upon us. May that bring us greater confidence and assurance in our prayers. Like, you you realize God wants to answer your prayer, and he can answer your prayer. Like, he loves to do so. May that give us greater confidence and assurance as we take, as we step out in faith like Nehemiah did here in this story. May this give us greater comfort as we face treacherous and perilous circumstances and situations. God hears and answers prayer. God is absolutely sovereign and God is working all things for the good of his people and the fulfillment of his promises. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for hearing us. Thank you for answering us. Lord, we adore you as the God who is over all, sovereign over all, who needs nothing but who gives everything. We thank you for your good gifts in creation. We thank you for your good gifts in redemption. Sending Christ for us and for our salvation. We give you thanks, Lord, that you're working all things out for the good of your people. Lord, we confess that we so often struggle to believe this. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us of that, amend what we are, direct what we will be, that we might believe you, trust you, and obey you that we might be fervent in prayer, restful because of your sovereignty, and trusting because you're working all things out for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.